You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Today's Old Testament reading, Psalm 20. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices, Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when, I, when we call. This is the word of the Lord. For our New Testament reading, please turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, we will be reading verses 3 through 23. Ephesians 1, 3 through 23. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. So Father, we come to you now. We ask that you would take up your word and wield it. 
that you would cause us to hear it, to understand it, to believe it, and be utterly transformed by it. God, the, the scriptures tell us that, that to see you is to hear your word. That you are beheld as your word is proclaimed. And so Lord, I pray that we would hear your word proclaimed and behold the Lord. Change us and make us those who love and delight in and proclaim and trust in the ascended reign of King Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. So the last few weeks we have been discussing the ascension, a theology of the ascension. I'm looking at various texts to consider um, what does it mean to confess, to believe, to worship in the light of, but also to live in the light of the fact that Christ is bodily ascended to the right hand of the Father and there reigns over all the earth. Um, we spent the very first week um, discussing, considering um, three different texts of Scripture. If you remember, we looked back in, in the book of Daniel, and when we lined that up next to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, and then we all, or Acts chapter 1, and then we lined that up with Revelation chapter 5, um, so that we saw first in the book of Acts, the disciples seeing Jesus bodily ascend into the clouds, um, and then we went back to Daniel and forward to Revelation to see what happened on the other side. Just as he disappeared from the view of the disciples, what happened to Jesus' body? And we saw there that Jesus ascended to the throne um, the, before the Ancient of Days in Daniel, or the one who was seated on the throne in the book of Revelation. Um, there, it, it was given to him all power and all authority and all honor and all glory. And you remember Revelation? He was given a scroll, a scroll that no one had the right to open because no one was found worthy in all of creation. And that scroll represented God's um, plans, his prophetic plans um, to fill the earth with his glory, to redeem the nations, and to bring judgment against all the rebellious people on the earth. And then Jesus, the lamb who was slain, who is also the lion of Judah, takes the scroll, and if you'll remember, a party breaks out. An absolute celebration of the lamb. And remember the elders, they just keep falling down. And they have their banjos, and we have singing, and we have myriads and myriads, which I just remind you means a lot, of angels singing. And we have all of creation singing. And you have the entire universe bowing before the Lamb, who is the Lion of Judah. Last week, we considered, continued thinking about this, considering the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And this week, we're going to do the same thing. And some of you, few of you, sad folk, maybe sitting there thinking, this is great. Another sermon about something that has zero relevance to the fact that I have to go to work tomorrow. I have to go to work tomorrow and I have to deal with Tom. And I don't like Tom. I hope no one here is named Tom. If you are, I apologize profusely. I'm not talking about you. If anyone you know this Tom, I'm not talking about him. Unless you work with Tom and are deeply annoyed by him every Monday. Then I'm talking exactly about Tom. 
I have to deal with Tom tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. Maybe we have a 7, at a 7.30 meeting. And Tom is terrible. And I don't know what to do with Tom. Some of you are thinking, this is great. Another sermon about something that has zero relevance to the fact that this afternoon I have to go home and I have to deal with my spouse, who's very frustrating to me right now. Some of you thinking, great, another sermon about some lamb, lion, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and I have to go to school tomorrow. School. And they make me take a thing called calculus at this school. What on earth does Jesus ascended bodily seated at the right hand of the Father, holding some sort of scroll that he's opening. What on earth does that, how on earth does that help me get through calculus? I hate calculus. I really do hate calculus. I'm thankful that it exists and there's someone who likes it. Um, I'm just not one of those people. What do we do with all of this? How, how on earth do, do we think about applying this doctrine and what on earth does this doctrine have to do with my day-to-day practical life. Others of you in this room might be wanting to take me aside after the service. Say, Brian, this is great. Kind of gotten under this weird theological fetish. But there are people here who don't know Jesus. There's non-Christians here. I have non-Christian friends, and, and, and we need, a, we need a, a Christianity that's compelling, that's winsome. Um, if you're not going to give us any sort of practical tips on how to do calculus, um, then maybe you could, you, you could appeal to the, the emotional satisfaction and kind of the, the psychological satisfaction that, that Christianity offers and how, how, how beautiful it is that God loves us and that he cares for us. And um, it, why all this talk about authority and kingship? Um, even though we had a new king, or somebody did, not we, um, uh, our old uh, taskmasters had a new king coronated yesterday. But why would you spend any time talking about that? That has no appeal. Like, get with the times. Like, we know um, that if for Christianity to be compelling to non-Christians, then you should talk about compelling things, like the practical use of Christianity, or how Christianity helps your life work better, or, or, or talk about Christianity as this satisfying, psychologically and emotionally satisfying reality that, that is the thing that you've always wanted. Um, why all this talk about authority and kingship? Well, I want to hold out for us today the entirety of the book of Ephesians. <laughs> I told my daughter that I was preaching all of Ephesians this morning, and she said, you shouldn't put it quite like that. Um, I want to see how this doctrine is used. I think one of the things that we can find as we look, particularly in the book of Acts, at every single sermon, evangelistic sermon preached in the book of Acts, central, in fact, the linchpin in every single one of those messages to non-believing crowds is the ascension of Jesus and his absolute authority as king and the promise that he will one day come as judge. Well, you'll find every time um, in the New Testament that, that Paul begins to, or one of, the other apostles, one of the other writers in the New Testament begins to kind of anchor 
practical things, practical realities like marriage or raising your children or work. He anchors his call to obedience not only in what Christ has accomplished for us at the cross, not only in his resurrection, but he grounds all of it in the absolute authority of Jesus as the ascended Lord who reigns over everything. So I've just given away my entire sermon, but that's where it's headed. I I, I pray that God would help us to see through kind of the outline of the book of Ephesians how the grounds of every practical sort of application that we can think of, for, for Paul at least, for the New Testament at least, all of those things are grounded in a confession and a belief in the resurrection of Jesus. And not just the resurrection of Jesus, but the ascension of Jesus. My, my prayer, my hope, is that we would see um, that you have not heard and believed the gospel, at least as the New Testament holds it out to us, unless someone has proclaimed it to you um, and you have confessed and believed in, not, not only the work of Jesus on the cross to see to it that our sins were atoned for, Not only the resurrection of Jesus and the promise that death itself has been defeated, but also an acknowledgement, a confession that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father and all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. This is what we're called to believe and I believe this is the grounds of all Christian living. So let's look first at Ephesians 1 through 3. Just broadly kind of taking broad strokes with the argument that Paul gives shape to in these three chapters. He, he opens his book in what is um, the text that was just read to us. In what I, I think many would consider to be one of the, the high places in the New Testament. If you think about the New Testament as going on a hike. Um, through various kinds of terrain. There are places in the New Testament that we can go to, and it's, it's like you're walking on a cliff looking at the most beautiful and stunning mountain vista imaginable. Um, it's like those places when you go on a hike, when um, you, you come through a clearing, you've been going through meadows, um, and you come up on, uh, on a place where you can just see the whole scope of where you've come from and where you're going. In other words, you get a view of everywhere you've been and everything around you. That's how Ephesians 1 functions for the rest of Ephesians, and and not just for Ephesians, but, but as it gives us an accounting of all of history. It first grounds the fact of our salvation in the predetermined plan of God. That God has set his love on you and chosen you. He gave you a destiny uh, before you were ever born. Uh, A destiny that doesn't come to you because you've earned it. It doesn't come to you because um, you're righteous enough or good enough. um, But rather, um, God set his affections on you. God chose you and loved you first, as we just saw in baptism. We love God because he first loved us. And in that love... The linchpin of that is that he has united us to Jesus. 
Um, uh, in, in our baptism, we confess that, that we have been united with Christ by faith. We believe in Jesus, um, therefore we are united with Jesus, such that what is true of Jesus is true of us. You and I are guilty of sin. We deserve death as a result of that. Um, in our union with Jesus, we have already died. Our sins have already been paid for. Um, the, the shadow and specter of death hangs over us. But yet in Jesus Christ, um, in our union with Jesus, death has already been, already been defeated for us. And so in chapter 1, he lays out a, a vision of what God had um, set out to do by choosing us, by giving us a destiny beforehand. In implementing that plan and that choosing through the work of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and ultimately his ascension. And then in chapter 2, he turns and applies that reality to us specifically. Um, showing how in our own lives, we began in a place of death. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And that apart from Jesus, all we have is death. Um, you may feel very alive, like you're breathing and you're eating um, and you're going to your work and you're tired every day. Um, but at the end of the day, what the, what the New Testament describes, the kind of life lived apart from Jesus is a living death. The verdict of death and judgment and hell hangs over us. We're enslaved to our own lusts, our own passions, our own desires. We are by nature, as it says in verse 3, children of wrath. But then, God, in Jesus, again by union with Jesus, makes us alive. And he makes us alive that we might go and do and live out the good works that he has fashioned for us to do. It's a wonderful turn of phrase in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, his poema, his creation. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, <laughs> that we should walk in them. He goes on in chapter 3 to describe and really ultimately culminates at the end of chapter 3 by stepping back and considering a, a call, a prayer in chapter 3 that we would see and marvel at and, and actually be, be given a supernatural capacity to behold and believe and rest in the love of God as he's just explained it in those three chapters. That's the first three chapters of Ephesians. There are few more delightful, beautiful, stunning places in all of Scripture. What's fascinating is where he goes next in chapters 4, 5, and 6. He moves from some of the highest places in all of Scripture in terms of the description of God's grace and his descriptions of the, the, the tangible beautiful, glorious work of Jesus and then immediately turns in chapter 4 to talk about how do you, how do you live in the life of the, the, the local church with, with some of the weirdos who are in this local church. I'll let you decide if you're one of those or if you're one of the people having to deal with the weirdos. Um, 
how do you, how do you live in that kind of world? And he, and he calls him in chapter 4 to a kind of life of love, of self-sacrifice, of, of thinking higher of others than, more than yourselves, of a kind of life where you see um, th- this, this menagerie of people all called and baptized in Jesus being knit together into a temple. And, and he, he, he grounds like all of the call to live life with one another graciously, mercifully, lovingly, in the first three chapters. This highfalutin theology in the first three chapters, the very first thing it gives birth to in chapter 4 and the first part of chapter 5 is life together in, in the most raw way imaginable in the local church. In other words, as you meditate on and consider and begin to celebrate everything he unfolds in chapters 1 through 3, The call is to worship together, to be patient with one another, to love one another, to to understand that that what God is building right now in this room is a temple that glorifies him forever and ever and ever. And then where does he go? Because that's still kind of, you know, religious-y, high thoughts, good theology. He he turns in in chapter 5, And growing out of that same soil, the soil of everything he outlines in chapters 1 through 3, he begins to address marriage. One of those beautiful and famous texts on marriage in all of the Bible, calling husbands to lead their wives, um, to, to, to exercise responsibility for their families, to love their wives in the exact same way that Christ loved the church. He tells you how to deal with that annoying spouse this afternoon. Then where does he go? Chapter 6, one of the most practical statements ever for all fathers of teenage boys. Do not exasperate your sons. (laughs) Where does this come from? Is chapters 4, 5, and 6 merely kind of a a litany, a list of do's and don'ts, a kind of um, nice morality um, uh, kind of stuck on to the tail end of this high vision of the theology espoused in 1 through 3? I don't think so. I think the grounds out of which all of that comes is a vision of Jesus, the the one who died, the one who in union with him our sins are forgiven. In union with him, death itself has been conquered. In union with him, he has ascended to the right hand of the Father where he reigns. I want to anchor this to the text, though. Don't just take my word for it. We should, you should see that in the Bible, not just say, wow, Brian had nice words this morning. They sounded nice. Let's, I like them. Um, but actually look at the text. So first, look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Where? In the heavenly places. So everything else he's about to say, he's located it somewhere. 
and he's located it somewhere, and we oftentimes don't know what to do with it. We, we, um, I've heard many preachers, I've probably done this myself in the past, treated in the heavenly places as nice flowery language and really got into the meat of, because I'm you know, this voracious, reformed, want to get straight into the predestination. Um, but, but, but right there, where has he blessed us? Where are all of these blessings located? In the heavenly places, before the throne of God. Let's keep going. Look for me down the back half of the chapter, starting in verse 15. For this reason, so he's explained kind of this whole initial process of God's choosing and the work of Jesus. Look what he says next. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Now here's the thing. He sees all of this. He knows all of this about what God's done. He sees these people believing these things and loving one another as a result of it. And he prays for them. What does he pray? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may you give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. So we're supposed to know something. And that knowledge should, should lead to a kind of wise living in the world. Which were linked in Paul's argument in this sentence. He sees these people, believes everything he says at the beginning of chapter 1 to be true of them. That God's chosen them. That Christ has accomplished their salvation at the cross. And then he gives thanks for them and then he begins to pray for them. And he prays that they would know something. And knowing that thing, it would lead to wise living. See the connection. Don't just take my word for it. See it in the text. You see it? Always look for it in the text. Some of you are staring at me. You're not looking at your text, your Bible. It's in there. Look at there. It's where all the magic is. Okay. I want them to know something, see something, know something that might lead to wisdom. What do you want them to see and know? Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. More seeing here. It's very, very important to Paul. Look at this. Wisdom, revelation, knowledge. Eyes of the heart enlightened. So we got revelation, knowledge, enlightened. Three words. They're just different angles on the same idea. I really want you to see this, he says. In fact, I so badly want you to see this. I get on my face and I plead with God that you would see this so that you might have wisdom. So whatever he's about to say, it's pretty important. If I went to you, Derek, and I said, Derek, really hope you understand this. Really need you to see this. It's important you'd be utterly transformed by a vision of this said three things in a row. It says, whatever I'm about to say really matters. Right? Derek gets it. Some of you are still not looking at your text. So, what does he want them to see? That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So there's one way of describing what he wants them to see. 
a kind of hope that he's called us to. And he restates it. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So it's a hope. It's also a rich inheritance. Third, this is where he really gets into it. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? So it's hope, a rich inheritance. It's coming about through a great, immeasurably great power that's at work. What is that power? It's the power, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And (laughs) seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. There's that phrase again. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. And gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. So, believing that God has chosen us, that he's given us a destiny, that he's implemented that through the sending of Jesus and Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, that we might be washed of all of our sins, um, that, that Believing that to be true about us, Paul then says, and now I give thanks that that's true of you, and I begin to pray. What does he pray? Prays that we would see something, that we would know something, that we'd be enlightened to something. And that enlightened knowledge would then transform the way we live. And what is the thing that he wants us to know? Jesus Christ, the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that caused Jesus to ascend to the right hand of the Father, where he reigns over every bit of authority, every dominion, every kingdom, every nation, every household, every suburb, every continent, every Every galaxy, every single part of the universe is under his absolute authority. Such that his name is above every other name that can be named. This section that we just laboriously walked through is the climactic turn out of which the rest of Ephesians flows out from. Everything else comes from this prayer that Paul wants us to see this. Everything else. He applies it with example in chapter 2. He develops it and prays even further in chapter 3. And then moves into the head-scratching sections. Chapter 4, 5, and 6. In other words, 
everything he says hinges on this prayer. That we would see this and know this and be enlightened to this. And then have a kind of wisdom that grows out from this. In other words, for Paul in Ephesians, the ascension is everything. Believing that Christ has ascended and all authority belongs to him and that power, that authority is actually at work in and among and for us is everything for Paul in Ephesians. Consider that for a moment. Sometimes we look at the kind of life that God has called us to live, um, the kind of husband that God's called me to be, the kind of father God's called me to be, the the kind of preacher that God's called me to be, um, the kind of banker that God's called you to be, whatever God's called you to be, we look at those things and think of them merely as kind of laborious, exhausting struggles. Regularly, regularly held back by our own weakness. Paul's going to call us into all of those things with great specificity in the coming chapters. And it hinges on not like, hey, work really hard. Although you should work really hard. Not on, hey, get your theology all square and all right. So you can pass muster when your catechism questions come. Although you should pass muster when your catechism question comes. He says, I plead with God. I get on my face before him, giving thanks for what he's accomplished for you in Jesus and that you believe it. And the sure sign that you believe it is that you're loving one another. Seeing that, I give thanks and then I get on my face and I plead with God that you would see This, Jesus Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father and he reigns over all things such that there is no name above his name that there is no authority that's even comparable to the kind of authority he has and that power, that authority is at work for you and in you and over you. And then when you begin to see that that confession, that declaration is at the climactic moment of every evangelistic moment in the book of Acts. Everything begins to change. So I want to spend the rest of our time, which is very short, because I couldn't get past, I had to talk about Daniel and Revelation again. Because I like to. I want to take just a moment to consider two things. The practical help the ascension offers. And then two, the, the answer to the problem of the evangelistic appeal of it. First, the practical help. So I'll, I'll go personal here. So in Paul's um, layout in Ephesians, he goes church, then he goes marriage, then he goes kids, then he goes work. So right now I'm the only one in the room really working. This is like my job. 
This morning, I was motivated by distinctly by three things as I was thinking about preaching to you today. First one, really wanted to honor God in how I preach today. I wanted to serve Him. I wanted Him to be honored and glorified before you today. Prayed that. Got on my face this morning and prayed that God would take this work, this labor I'm doing this morning and be honored and glorified in it. I also prayed for something else. I prayed that you would be helped. That you'd see God and love God and be changed and helped to understand what the Bible says, to understand the words of God, and to believe them and be changed by them. So it's motivated by a real desire, I think, to honor Jesus, honor God. Two, I really wanted to be helpful to you this morning. But guess what else I was motivated by this morning? I wanted you guys to think I'm awesome. I didn't pray for that because I would be, that, I'm self-conscious, I'm self-aware enough to know that like, you shouldn't ask God. I want to pray these people would think I'm awesome. But I thought, I, I, I didn't think that. I, I know that motivation was there. How do I pull this turn of phrase such that Justin is wowed? And he thinks, man, Brian really delivered that line powerfully and awesome. Pointing that way, and I'm hitting both Justins. <clears throat> so you go to work tomorrow. Maybe you've thought about it enough, and you've, you've listened to us talking about work. It'd be a good man night. Whatever. But you know that your work should be done as unto the Lord, right? That's what, that's what the Bible says. So you go to your job tomorrow, whatever that is. You think, I, I want to honor God in how I do my work. I want to be, um, be a master of my craft, as Bob said beautifully on Friday night. Whatever that craft is, whether you're doing water treatment or you're selling oil parts or you're a teacher or you're a stay-at-home mom, or you're with the kids hanging out in the afternoon, or you're a student, students, seniors maybe particularly, you wake up tomorrow and you know these things, and so you get just a moment of prayer on your way to school, and say, Lord, I, I want to honor you in how I study calculus today. That's even possible. But, no, I'm going to honor God. And two, as I go to school today, I want to help the people around me. I want to love them. I want to serve them in all the things I'm up to today. And then you notice underneath all of that, a kind of stubborn selfishness. A kind of stubborn self-regard um, that, that's sinful. Not all self-regard is sinful. But the kind it is. Maybe a kind of pride. I'm the best at calculus. The Lord gave me calculus to show me all the ways I'm not the best. Or I'm the best at lit. Or I'm the best dad. I want my kids to be impressed with me. Whatever the thing might be. And, and you find in your own heart these competing impulses, right? And, and when you look at them, you go, these honor God. These are actually commanded by Scripture. And these are wretched and gross. What do you do in that moment? How do you wrestle with those realities? You remember the ascension of Jesus. 
and you anchor yourself um, to the power of God, exercise to the authority of Jesus, such that you cling to and put your hope in and, and give thanks for the fact that you have any righteous impulse in you at all, knowing they were put there by God, and the thing that put them there is the same power that, that raised Jesus from the dead, but didn't just stop there, but ascended into the right hand, that he was ascended to the right hand of the Father. Believing that Jesus is Lord and King. Husbands, you then consider the nature of marriage and what does it mean to be a husband? What does it mean to lead a wife? To love a wife? To care for a wife? To provide for, yes. Sometimes that's the easiest part, right? Just keep your job. Like the hard part is actually shepherding, caring for, investing in. Having the hard conversation or the difficult conversation. And you're exhausted by it. How do you do that? You believe, you see, you understand, and you begin to live out a kind of wisdom born of the fact that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father and he reigns over everything forever and ever and ever and ever. How do you think about raising your kids? I mean, you want them to work hard. You don't want them to be lazy. You want them to be respectful. I mean, you want them to not dress weird. Um, you have all kinds of desires, just practical desires for your kids, but what's the North Star that kind of orients everything so that you know that your desires aren't just kind of personal hopes for your kids? Like, I hope one of my kids plays in the NBA so that I can have a very comfortable old age. Or I want my kids to work really, really hard and with integrity. How do I begin to assess my desires, my hopes, my dreams, how I parent, how I discipline, how I teach, how I educate my kids? How do I assess all of that? Begin to know and to understand and be enlightened to the fact that Jesus Christ reigns over all of the nations. He is king and his name is above every other name that there is. And then everything else with regards to my fathering of my kids flows directly from there. Does this serve and acknowledge the authority of Jesus over everything? You begin to order your life, order your priorities, order your time to that North Star. Second point. What about evangelistic appeal? I need to go quickly on this. But, but I will say that there's been constant regular shifts within kind of the evangelical church, which to one degree or another, all of us have been exposed to. Um, it, it began back in the 80s um, there was this whole move um, called seeker sensitivity. And it was this, this kind of orientation to evangelism to say the best way to get people who aren't in the church, who don't believe in Jesus, to come into the church, to believe in Jesus, is we're going to give them every week three steps for how to live a better life. Three steps for a more successful life. Three steps 
to how to be a better dad. Three steps on how to be a better wife. Whatever the thing is, it was all pragmatic Christianity. And so it was, um, let us show you week in and week out how useful Christianity is to your day-to-day life. Now, now please don't mishear me. I'm not against practical preaching. But there was an orientation that said what people need in order to come to Jesus is for them to simply see how useful Christianity is and how it will solve the problems in their life. That does not happen anywhere in the New Testament. (laughs) Then, in our day, there's been a shift. Same idea, but instead of let me show you how Christianity is useful, it's become, because we live in what Philip Reef calls a therapeutic age, called Truman hits upon this in a couple of his books, lots of people are observing this, um, the, the church is not adapted. People don't want pragmatics anymore. They don't really care how useful a thing is anymore. Now what they want to know is how does this psychologically satisfy me? How does it make me feel better? So all the church does now is like the only way we can get non-Christians or non-believers or your non-believing neighbor to believe in Jesus, how do we get them in the church, is we need to show them in the old way is how is Christianity useful, and in the new day it's how does Christianity help you feel better about the world? See the parallel? Begins by accepting what everybody else says, says is most important, then going back to Jesus and digging there for things that will answer that desire. But what you see again and again and again in the New Testament is not going into Rome and saying, I wonder what political issues or philosophical issues are really burning there on the streets of Rome, and let's answer those. What you see is apostles standing up in Jerusalem, standing up in Corinth, standing up at Athens, standing up eventually in Rome itself before Caesar and declaring Jesus Christ died, Jesus Christ was raised with a heavy emphasis every single time. Jesus Christ ascended and is seated now at the right hand of the Father in power and all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. Every single knee, either willingly and by faith and with joy or in judgment, will bend before him and he will come again to judge the righteous and the wicked. Sometimes they just end their sermon there. Like, you know, help them. Like, tell them what they're supposed to do now. Where is the evangelistic appeal? It is a kind of life lived under the authority of Jesus. Is it more useful and practical? Yeah. Sometimes in really weird ways. (laughs) Is it? psychologically or therapeutically satisfying. Yeah. But almost always in really weird ways. Right? God loves you. And you're terrible. 
<laughs> but at the heart of what the Christian confession is, as Paul says in Romans, it's a declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the heart of, of every practical application and living out in light of these things that Paul gives us in Ephesians. It, it is also the anchor point, the primary thing that must be declared in the midst of a city or in neighborhoods or in families filled with people who don't believe in Jesus. You may find him useful or not useful. You may find the Christian message sat psychologically satisfying or not satisfying. But you will have to deal with Jesus. In other words, what we see in the New Testament is not a declaration of here's an idea and let's let it com compete in the world of ideas and find out what works best. What we have is people standing up and declaring in the face of persecution, in the face of death, in the face of being ostracized from their communities and families, a standing and saying, Jesus Christ reigns. That Jesus Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father. His name is above every single name. His authority is over every government, um, every pastor, every Supreme Court justice, every president, every king coronated in some weird island somewhere. No, he is Lord and King. And everyone will answer to him. So repent. Repent of your sins. Repent of your desire to be your own God and King. Receive the good news. Jesus Christ died. Jesus Christ was raised. And Jesus Christ now reigns. Let's pray and prepare for communion.